Thank you again, everyone, for joining us for today's Friday Gallery Talk. And now I'd like to introduce you to Georgetown University's Professor Michelle C. Wang. Um, thank you, Caroline. And thank you, everyone, for coming today um, and to hear me talk. Um, um, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, I'm sure that um, you're all as excited as, as I am to see this exhibit. Um, so this is the first North American venue for this retrospective of Ai Weiwei's work. Um, it's open through February. So um, this is your first time seeing it. Um, I hope you'll come back again and again. Um, I want to start here because we have a photograph here, um, actually three photographs, uh, showing Ai Weiwei in his studio um, in front of a number of Neolithic pots. Um, the late Neolithic period in China uh, runs from around 5,000 to 2,000 BCE. Um, and these are the same type of pots that you'll see um, later on in the exhibit when we walk over to see the works that I'll actually be talking about. And here you have a really nice view. Um, you can get closer, if you'd like, of what these pots look like um, before uh, being painted over by Ai Weiwei. So we can see a number of uh, different motifs. Uh, for example, the more angular zigzag type motifs, um, as well as circular net type motifs, and especially on the upper half of the pots. Um, so using these photographs as a starting point, I want to first um, talk a little bit about the history of ceramics in China um, and about Ai Weiwei's own encounter with ceramics before moving on to see other works in the exhibit. Um, ceramics have a very long um, history in China, um, and ceramics in general are among the most durable archaeological artifacts, I think, across the world. And as I mentioned, the Neolithic period uh, runs from 5,000 to 2,000 BCE. And the kind of pots that you see here uh, were pots that were found in burials, um, oftentimes painted. Um, and these were used for utilitarian purposes. So these were things that, um, while they were in use, uh, would have held um, food, um, they would have held grain, they would have held water. Um, and if you walk further down the exhibit, there's an interesting quote uh, from Ai Weiwei on some of the wall text, which describes how uh, one of his aims is to take the useful and make these useful things non-useful, and that's something that we see running through um, other types of objects in this exhibit as well. Um, so these pots are made out of earthenware, um, and earthenware is low-fired pottery. So this is pottery that's fired at about 900 degrees Celsius. Um, this also means that's fairly porous. Um, it can be broken into shards easily, but it can be reconstituted. Um, pottery uses um, some of the most humble materials that can be found. Um, so pottery simply made from, uh, from clay. And these earthenware pots um, that Ai Weiwei used um, in various pieces uh, were made from a type of soil called less soil, spelled L-O-E-S-S. And this is windblown silt that accumulates in riverbeds. So we find this in various parts of the world. Um, so in China, we find this type of soil in the Yellow River Valley. Um, we also find in certain deposits in, the, in North America. And um, going back to the long history of ceramics, so um, in the Neolithic period, um, pottery, um, in addition to stone implements um, and jades, those hard stones, um, are the earliest cultural artifacts that we have from China. And the fact that Ai Weiwei, I think, has chosen to, um, chose to use this material um, and his earliest experiments with pottery um, occurred um, just right after his return to China um, in 1993, I think says something about maybe trying to get the very beginning of an artistic tradition in China, an expressive tradition in China. Um, so let's, let me give you some background, just very quick background in terms of where um, pottery fits into um, the overall um, uh, creative activity of Ai Weiwei. Um, so many of these photographs, um, but not all of them, um, document the um, period of slightly over a decade um, in which he spent in New York City uh, from 1981 to 1993. 
1993, Ai Weiwei came back to Beijing um, because his father was very ill. His father was um, a very famous poet, I'm sure many of you know. And um, ceramics um, has um, a fairly long personal history um, in Ai Weiwei's life. Um, in 1977, um, before leaving for New York City, um, he studied for a brief period of time at the Beijing Film Academy. And in the summer before he starts studying film, so remember, he's someone who was never formally trained in the fine arts. Um, his formal education was actually in film um, in China. Um, he spent a period of several months um, apprenticed um, in a kiln in northern China. Uh, so it was during this period of time that he learned how to work with clay. Um, and he made a number of pieces, um, including a sculpture of an owl. This was actually the first piece of his to be published in an art periodical in China. Um, in interviews with Ai, we also understand uh, the role that ceramics, um, that clay is material, um, played in his, in his own background. Um, his father, a famous poet, traveled widely. Um, and oftentimes, the souvenirs that his father, Ai Qing, would bring back to China to his family were ceramic objects. So this was something that, uh, from his early childhood, was really tied up with a sense of personal memory. Um, and then going back to the role of ceramics, um, not just in Ai's own personal history, but also in Chinese history and how the two come together, how the two are conflated, um, Ai's been quoted as saying that the two items, which um, um, in terms of export items uh, from China that um, the West could not resist uh, were silk and ceramics. And this seems to echo a process by which the art critic Phil Pinari has said that um, the small sea, China, the small sea that is pottery, has come to stand for um, the big sea, China. Okay, um, so let's walk down here, and all of you should try to get a closer look because uh, you won't get to see these wonderful patterns really because they've been painted over. <laughs> or so we see. All right. Um, there are three uh, works, or I should say, three groups of works in particular that I'd like to focus the rest of the talk on. And um, the first of which is uh, the Coca-Cola vase that you see here. Um, so this particular one is dated 2007, and here you can get a really wonderful sense of the underlying um, patterns that were originally painted um, on this during the Neolithic period. Um, so as I mentioned, Ai Weiwei came back to Beijing in 1993 because of family circumstances. And um, in that very same year, he began experimenting with pottery um, as an artistic medium. And his very first work in pottery uh, was a small funerary sculpture that he somehow managed to insert inside a Johnny Walker red bottle. So that is not... Okay, um, so that is not in this exhibit, but um, so the very first, <laughs> the very first work was a small uh, ceramic funerary sculpture that was placed inside a Johnny Walker red bottle. Um, so, and this was something that he made in 1993. And in doing so, the fact that he chose to use materials that were available to him rather than making things from scratch um, illustrates some of the artistic concepts that he was exposed to uh, during his decade of living in New York City, um, specifically Duchamp's notion of the ready-made. And um, if we speak about Duchamp a little bit long, uh, further, um, Duchamp was someone um, in whom Ai Weiwei was very interested. Um, there's actually a photograph further on in the gallery that shows Ai Weiwei posed next to a Duchamp piece um, in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And the idea was that Duchamp was against what he called retinal art. So he was against something that was appreciated simply for the way it looked on the surface, but rather he was interested in um, the contradictions, the paradoxes, or even the irony of taking things from everyday life. And through um, um, singling out these things, 
elevate them to high art. And as I mentioned, parts of these type were never um, meant for display in a museum the way they are now. So these were items that were simply used um, for utilitarian purposes in everyday life. So after the piece in which I placed a small ceramic sculpture inside Johnny Walker Rebel in 1993, um, in 1994, he began experimenting with painting Neolithic pots uh, with Coca-Cola motifs. Um, so I should say that um, Coca-Cola um, first opened a bottling plant in China in, 19, in the 1920s. So um, this was um, an export from the West that um, I guess similar to Pottery Love, now as long as Pottery also had a long history in China. Um, and then after the opening of China to foreign investment in 1979, um, Coca-Cola was one of the companies that um, uh, first began to, uh, I guess, re-enter the Chinese market and to distribute their products widely. And now there are more than 40 um, Coca-Cola bottling plants um, in China. Um, the earliest of these pieces, as I mentioned, um, I began to do the Coca-Cola pieces in 1994, uh, were painted all over with white, so obscuring the original ground painting. And then they were painted over with the Coca-Cola motif in red. So this one is a later variation of that theme, um, which was made in 2007, in which you can see the underlying motifs. And if you take a close look, you can see that the underlying motifs, again, composed of a combination of zigzag like patterns with circular nets, are painted exclusively in black and red. So these were um, the two um, pigments, the two colors that we see um, in surface paintings from these pots from the Neolithic period. Um, so going back to the idea of the ready-made then, and so what I um, experimented with was taking these things that were used for utilitarian purposes, um, and at the time that I began to collect these Neolithic pots um, in the early 1990s um, in antique markets around Beijing, uh, we can assume that these things would not have been very valuable during that time. So he was essentially creating a display context, creating a museum context for these objects where there had been none, either during the original time that they were made or in 20th century China. Um, I should also say that um, there's a really wonderful story about Ai Weiwei, and again, I think that um, in terms of the various medium, media that he's worked with, um, which is very broad for um, any contemporary artist, that um, there's a really wonderful story about the moment at which Ai Weiwei was preparing in 1981 to leave China um, to go to the United States, and um, he had just exited a Bank of America, so he was trying to change um, Chinese currency into U.S. currency, um, so that when he arrived he would have some, some currency to travel with. And um, as he walked out the door of the main branch of the Bank of China, um, he saw a man riding by in sort of a bicycle, a flatbed bicycle, and there were numerous pots of just this type um, in the back of, of this kind of a bicycle-driven truck, and that kind of gives us a sense maybe of uh, the accumulation of this type of cultural artifact maybe at a time that they were not valued. Um, let's see. Um, so if we take a closer look at the Coca-Cola motif, um, I also want to think about the ways in which um, in Ai's own appropriation of these material objects, um, how he has, um, through the areas that he's chosen to focus on and how he's chosen to um, paint his own motifs, um, how he's interacting with the um, original painted motifs down below. And um, we can see that there's some um, sense of curvilinear patterns, especially in the circular um, net 
patterns on the side, and I have certainly chosen to echo some of that um, in the curvilinear pattern of the Coca-Cola, um, uh, the Coca-Cola logo. Um, at the same time, he's concentrated much of his attention on the upper half of the vessels. Um, so, particularly for this type of Neolithic vessel, and this is the same type that you saw in the photograph earlier at the very beginning, um, these painted motifs tend to be concentrated in the upper part of the vessels uh, rather than the lower part. Um, so here, I has kind of focused his attention on specifically that area um, that the original artisan also painted um, his or her motifs. Um, at the same time, what he's done is to um, focus his attention only on one side of the vessel. So whereas the original pattern continues um, around the entire surface of the vessel in a 360-degree pattern, um, I've always chosen to focus on only one section. So in addition to elevating this vessel and giving it a museum display context, he's also asking us as viewers to focus our attention on one side uh, rather than on the other side of the vessel. Okay. Um, let's move on then to the three photographs on the wall behind you. And here I'm kind of tracing his use of ceramics in a chronological fashion. And these three photographs document a performance um, by I, um, so this was in 1995, um, so one year after the original Coca-Cola vases were made. And um, in terms of kind of tracing his interest in ceramics, um, this is a period when I really began to experiment with the material um, through destroying the material, so kind of really pushing the material and learning about what the material can do. And uh, the vase that we see here dates to the Han Dynasty, so this is um, actually quite a bit later than the Neolithic pot that you saw over there in the case. Um, the Han Dynasty ranges from the 3rd century uh, BC to the 3rd century CE. And we can see that some elements of the shape are still the same, so um, although the neck has become elongated, and this was a vase that would have been glazed, um, and a glaze is um, a surface treatment which contains um, silicates so that when it's fired in the kiln, it produces a glossy surface. So much of that detail, however, is lost on us, unfortunately, because this is a black and white photograph. Um, and in this series of photographs, we can see I, first of all, um, holding the vase, um, and the second one, uh, this vase uh, dropping to the ground, and then the third one, uh, finally, um, completely, you know, utterly destroyed to shards at his feet. Um, so in various interviews that have been conducted with the artist, he's been uh, remarkably resistant to imposing a single reading uh, upon this particular um, uh, performance, this particular event. And there's some who have questioned why, um, as someone who experienced firsthand the Cultural Revolution in China uh, from 1966 to 1976, uh, during which countless numbers of, card of cultural artifacts were destroyed, uh, some have questioned why he himself would try to destroy cultural artifacts. And um, those of you who are familiar with Ai's autobiography will know that um, uh, the Cultural Revolution was really kind of a pivotal turning point in his family history. It was actually during that period when he and his family were forced to live um, in Xinjiang uh, Autonomous Uyghur region in the far northwest. Um, and uh, to this, I have simply stated that um, in order to destroy something, uh, you first need to know it. Um, so you need to understand um, the properties of a specific material before you can actually destroy it. 
Um, in other interviews, he said that um, his interest in producing um, this, in, in carrying out this performance, laying gravity, he wanted to see what gravity could do. And if we follow the sequence um, from the first photograph on the left to the last one at the right, uh, what I find particularly striking about this um, is, first of all, um, the documentation of time. And in the first photograph, we can see the eyes looking straight out um, at either the real or imagined viewer or photographer. And this is a gaze that never wavers from the first photograph to the last. Um, and um, he's holding the pot at a slight angle, so we can see he's holding the neck of the vessel um, slightly higher than um, the bottom of the vessel, which he holds in his left hand. Um, he's holding this vase at an angle, but if we move on to the middle photograph, we can see after he's let the vase go, um, the position changes. Um, so it's no longer falling at an angle, but the vase has righted itself up, and it's falling, itse it's falling down, um, and the bottom part of the vase is hitting the ground uh, before the neck does. Um, and again, um, he's looking resolutely outwards, so the gaze hasn't changed at all. He's not looking down to see what happens. And this does suggest to me um, an un underlying understanding of the material, of uh, principles of gravity, of, of what will happen. Um, and then finally, in the third photograph, we can see that you know, the position of, of eyes' hands is, is unchanged, virtually unchanged from the middle photograph. And now the vase has hit the ground. Um, and so we can see that the bottom part of the vase, the round portion, the globular portion, has completely shattered into shards, um, whereas half of the neck is still um, intact. And um, so I find this very interesting, the fact that um, because of the, either due to a combination of the material itself, the properties of the material, um, the shape, uh, the thinness of the neck compared to the roundness of the body, um, and the work of gravity all acting tandem with one another, that we have completely different results from these two different parts of the um, and again, he's looking resolutely outward, and um, this also ties, I think, into um, eyes interest in photography, and you'll see many of these photographs along um, the rear wall of the exhibit. And um, this, is, and I like to think of I as um, uh, someone who is not, um, who is simply performing um, the dropping of the vase at the time it happened, but maybe not really realizing the full extent of the results until after it happened, until after he had a chance to look at the photographs. So I kind of um, like to think of um, the experience that he may have had at the time that this was taking place, um, as well as after um, the event had concluded and he was able to see um, the results um, captured on film. Um, let's hold questions to the end because I'm actually going to ask any of you have questions to speak into the mic so that the whole group can hear you. Would that be all right? Yeah. Okay, the last piece that I'd like to um, discuss after um, I open the floor up to questions um, is colored vases uh, between 2007 to 2010. And um, just to kind of give you a further sense of how I's interest in ceramic um, as a medium uh, unfolded uh, throughout the 1990s and the first decade of the 21st century, uh, one year after I dropped this Han Dynasty urn, um, that is in 1996, um, he experimented with uh, blue and white ceramics of the type that we see in late Imperial China, um, and he smashed, um, so he actually used a hammer and smashed uh, blue and white ceramic vase. This is something that was also documented in photography. Um, and then in 2009, um, I made a work called Dust to Dust, and this consisted of um, dust uh, produced uh, from a Han Dynasty urn of the type that was shattered here um, that was then collected into a bottle. Um, so we continue to see his interest um, in clay as a medium um, into the well into the 21st century. 
Um, around the time that this piece was made, actually just the year before, in 2006, um, Ai Weiwei began to um, express an interest um, not just in reworking um, earlier pots, that is the idea of the ready-made, um, but he was also interested in um, pushing the medium to its limits um, in ways that, for example, um, played around with, with scale. Um, so one piece that's behind you um, it was, is dating from 2006. And these are two oversized um, porcelain bowls uh, with freshwater pearls inside them. There are other instances, for example, he uh, made a dress out of porcelain. Um, so turning one material into another, fabric into porcelain. Um, he also experimented with making oversized um, pillar-like ceramic, um, ceramic vases. Um, so going back to this piece, which is dating from 2007 to 2010, um, and these are made from a combination of Neolithic and Han Dynasty urns. And if you look very closely, you can see some of the original painting, although it's very faint. Um, so, um, in the Coca-Cola vase, in the earlier photograph, you're able to see uh, the patterns as they originally looked on the surface of these um, Han um, excuse me, um, Neolithic and Han Dynasty pots. And one thing I want to mention is that um, I talked a little bit um, at the beginning of this gallery talk about uh, the medium of clay, um, the less, uh, less, this material of less, uh, the wind-blown silt uh, that was used to originally make these pots. And uh, the painted patterns on the surface of the Neolithic pots um, also came from the same material as the pots themselves. So um, the black and red patterns that I drew your attention to previously uh, were made uh, from watery clay. And so by overpainting um, the Coca-Cola logo um, and by overpainting these pots here with industrial paints, um, Iowa Way has not only um, played with this idea of the ready-made, of using things that are, are available that are, and is simply reworking them, elevating to the status of museum objects, um, but he also has introduced an entirely new medium um, to, into the mix that is um, industrial paints. So type of material that certainly would not have been present at that time and type of material that one would normally use um, in working with ceramics. Um, you can see drip patterns um, on these vases, and we should also note, in addition to the introduction of new materials, uh, the introduction of a new color spectrum. So as I pointed out previously, um, the original Neolithic pots would have been painted only in red and black, uh, but here he's introduced um, really a rainbow of colors, yellows, reds, uh, greens, uh, peaches, um, and so forth. Uh, if we take a look at the drip patterns, uh, this gives us um, a sense of the process by which these um, pots were painted. Um, and their photographs, um, actually in the exhibition catalog for this show, that um, show Ai Weiwei um, taking the pots and holding them either by the neck or by the bottom part, actually dipping them um, into pails of paint, of this industrial paint. And through the drip patterns, we can see, for example, that um, this pot here was dipped first in white. Um, and after that dried, it was then dipped in purple and then placed upright. And we can tell that from the dripping pattern, the purple paints. And we can also note the alternation of different paints. So uh, for example, um, I we used um, red 
Um, let's see, he uh, used red to uh, dip the upper portion of that pot over there. Um, and here he used red um, to dip the bottom part of the pot. So there's also an alternation between uh, which color was dipped first and whether he's treating on um, the upper or lower portion of the pot. Um, as I mentioned previously, um, the original Neolithic pots were only painted, um, especially ones of this shape, were only painted on the upper portion. Um, so here again, I has um, kind of chosen to approach this form in a different way um, in painting not only the upper portion but also the bottom portion of the pots as well. Um, going back to the drip patterns, whether intentionally or unintentionally, um, Ai Weiwei um, has mimicked um, the way in which um, pre-modern ceramics, um, especially tea bowls in China, were dipped and glazed. And you'll be able to see some examples of these um, if you uh, walk over to the Freer and Sackler galleries. And um, uh, in, in certain tea bowls, um, particularly of a type that developed in the um, second millennium CE, uh, were dipped um, actually multiple times in very heavy glazes and then purposely placed upright um, so that the glaze would create drag patterns, drag patterns um, of the type that you see here. Um, another thing that we can focus our attention on, and this is going back to these drip patterns, and I think this also ties in um, the experiments that I conducted on the colored vases very nicely to drop Han Dain to earn back here, is that he was simply let gravity doing its job. And so there's a certain amount of randomness in how the paint would drip exactly. So we assume that he knew enough about um, this paint to know, for example, um, maybe how quickly um, the drips would occur and maybe how to control that in terms of how long he was holding the pots and the paint. Um, but at the same time, there's a certain amount of randomness. You can't really fully control on the way that the paint drips. And this is very different from the way in which these urns were originally painted um, in very purposeful circular, curvilinear, um, as well as angular patterns. Um, I think that concludes um, my observations um, on these pieces. And so I'm interested in hearing your reflections or whether you might have um, any follow-up questions. And I'll just ask you to speak to the microphone. So I'll pass the microphone down, um, maybe starting from this end. Okay. My first question had to do with um, the Coca-Cola. These are both Neolithic, right here and there. Yeah, um, the Coca-Cola bottle has these little ears on it, and these ones don't. They just go up and you know at angulars. But did that did that um, mean that it had a different use originally, or was it just artistic? Um, so the question was about the little um, handles on the sides of the pots, and. Um, those um, little handles are believed to have served a utilitarian function whereby um, if those pots were used for cooking purposes, there may have been rope that was strung through them. You can see this in the Coca-Cola pot behind you uh, where there may have been rope strung behind them and this may have been hung from some sort of support so that heat could be applied down below. And we also, we often see those on um, pots that unlike these are pointed at the bottom where they would need to be supported in some way because they couldn't stand up flat on their own. Um, so the reason why these might not have those little handles maybe because the bombs are flat and they can't stand up on their own. Um, and let's see, in this Han Dynasty, so this one actually doesn't have, um, the Han Dynasty pot behind us doesn't have the little handles as well. So. Mm -hmm. um, they were not thrown, they were produced. The question was how they were made originally. Um, so these are not wheel thrown pots, they were made through um, by means of building up clay coils. Um, so less soil will be worked into clay. This was something that was very sticky, so it would be rolled out into coils um, and then kind of built up. So the surface would be built up gradually and then it would be smoothed out exactly to make sure that the coils stuck to one another. 
Yeah. Did you have a question? I'm thinking about life after death with this shattered pot. Archaeologists painstakingly reassemble the shards. Do you know what happened afterwards? Ooh. <laughs> I do not know what happened after this one, but I do know that there are other pieces in which I has himself collected shards and repurposed them. And actually going back to, so the question was about how archaeologists have painstakingly put together pottery shards from archaeological sites in order to study um, the pottery um, of certain historical periods more clearly. And I should also mention that of the Neolithic pots in particular, um, and we've talked a little bit about how they originally painted, that um, I'm thinking of one archaeological site in particular in central China where there are about a thousand that have been rebuilt from shards, um, similar to what you see here, uh, but only a few dozen of those were painted. Um, so, um, so this is also interesting to keep in mind. And so there seems to have been maybe a purposeful selection um, of, of choosing these Neolithic pots that originally had patterns, even though those were relatively more scarce. Uh, than unpainted pots, and then covering them up with either Coca-Cola logos or with paint. Um, I joined in a little later, but I was wondering, um, maybe you talked about this already, but how common is, are these kind of urns or vases in China? How easy, how accessible are they to find? Um, the type of Neolithic pottery that we see here, and, and also in the case of the Coca-Cola urn, were first discovered um, by Western archaeologists actually in 1912. Um, so the first archaeologist to work on them was the um, Swedish archaeologist J.G. Anderson. And, um, and um, at that time, there was actually some interest, especially in the curvilinear patterns, um, because of the presence of um, painted patterns and other types of pottery. And there are also some questions because um, pots of this type were discovered um, in an area um, in central China, um, leading into northwestern China, about whether these types of patterns were native uh, to China, whether they may have been, may have, um, been influenced by um, painted pottery patterns from further west, such as the, the ancient Mediterranean world. Um, as far as their current availability, um, there is just, uh, there's so many archaeological finds being made all the time in China, so certainly Neolithic pots are still being discovered in China. I don't have figures as far as whether these run in the hundreds or thousands, but, um, but there's so many archaeological finds and a lot of this has to do with construction. So whenever construction is being done, usually um, archaeological finds will follow. Um, at the time that I turned his interest to ceramics, we know that after he came back to China, um, that he was trawling antique markets in China and actively collecting these um, in the early 1900s. And at that time, and, and I should also say that in terms of the relative value on the art market of Neolithic pots such as these um, versus, let's say, um, blue and white porcelain, um, that these tend to be a little bit lower on the scale than blue and white porcelains, and especially porcelains that have imperial marks that can be dated to a certain imperial reign. And this also leads us into um, other questions that I has been probing throughout his career, that is um, the uh, distinction, for example, between real and fake. So he's been remarkably um, closed-lipped on whether the pots that were overpainted are genuine pots or, or whether these were pots that were made by his own studio through artisans that he's worked with. Um, he's also in other works, um, and it was right around this time that he came back to China um, in the early 1990s, and he actually began collaborating with um, 
um, artisans um, in Qingdui Chen in southeastern China. And this is an area in which there are many pottery kilns uh, which serve the imperial court. And at the same time that he was doing these works um, um, in the 1990s, he also began having blue and white porcelains. Again, these are the types of things that are very precious in the art market made in these kilns. And this caused him to question really the status of art and how we define art because he was having things made that were made to imperial standards. Um, they copied the same patterns um, as pre-modern ceramics, as pre-modern porcelains. Um, but they were much later in date, so there's sort of a real question about how we assign value to objects. Things probed, not just in the ceramic pieces, but in other pieces as well in this exhibit. Hi, so are those original antiques or those are reproduction pots? Well, we don't really know, and if I had to guess, I would say that he wants to keep... Uh, the question is whether these colored the colored vases, um, whether these are originals or reproductions. And I would say that, um, if I had to guess, I would think that everybody wants to keep us guessing. Um, so he has not given a straightforward answer in interviews about whether these are original or not. And he has the ability, I mean, he's collaborated with artisans, he has the ability to, to have things like this made um, if he wants to. He's done this with blue and white porcelain, certainly. So. Um, the question is, so the next question was about the furniture, and my understanding is that those were also salvaged from antique markets, um, as well as temples. So there's a range of different objects, so there are some things that still remain more or less in their original form, um, like the stools, even though they've been repurposed, and then there are other works that were made with salvaged wood and even metal rods. Um, I was curious to see if, if, they were paint, if there was any paint on the inside, and I noticed there's something in this pot, and I wonder if you know what that is, what that would be, yes. Yeah. Um, so the question was about painting on the inside of these pots. So in terms of the surface treatment, the distinction between the interior and exterior surfaces in original Neolithic pots, uh, generally for pots of this shape, we would expect to see most of the decoration on the exterior and especially on the upper part. So kind of above the, um, I guess we could call it the shoulder or the hip of the vessel, the, the fullest part of the vessel. And in some cases, that decoration also extends into the inside, especially of the neck, where the motifs will be continuous from the outside of the neck, this very narrow portion, to the inside. Um, so I'm not seeing a lot of that here, and I don't know if it's just because of exposure, whether the original paintings may have um, faded away. Um, but um, we can see, for example, drips from the paint. So as I mentioned, um, he would dip these pots um, in pails of paint and then set them upright in order to produce random drip patterns. So in some cases, we can see the dripping pattern of the paint, and this would depend, have depended upon, I think, simply how much paint had occurred on the surface, how long he had dipped them for. So there's a lot of dripping here in the green, for example, but you can't see as much in the red with the red over there. Um, I have two questions. The first one is really about the choice. Uh, I also wonder why it's Han Dynasty porcelain, or I mean not porcelain, it's a pot, or why is it Neolithic pot versus, you know, the Qianlong Emperor, you know, the porcelain production at that time. I mean, you mentioned the market value, obviously these ones are, you know, lower, but I don't know in terms of choice if he has other ideas about those, or if see someone offer him with a really valuable Qianlong Emperor, you know, uh, any porcelain produced at that time, will he actually Drop that as well. And then my second question about the Coca-Cola pot. Yes, uh, you mentioned the series was started about 1994, and at that time, you know, around 1993, I think Wang Guangyi was doing, you know, the great criticism where he also has, you know, Coca-Cola was um, with the the Chinese social realist posters. So I don't know if they sort of like talk to each other, you know, or 
and also I know Wang Guangyin does Pepsi and you know other brands. So why Coca-Cola for Iowa? So that's my question. Um, so the first question was why Neolithic pots um, and whether similar such experiments were conducted using late imperial porcelains, for example, blue and white painted porcelains. And um, I don't have an answer from I about that, but just knowing something about the technical characteristics of these different pots, um, the only instance I know of in which she um, destroyed a blue and white porcelain piece uh, was in 1996, one year after this. And I don't think that photograph is displayed here, but um, this, this has been captured in photography where he uh, put a blue and white porcelain piece um, on a small table and then hit it with a hammer and shattered it. Um, these, um, you know, different types of pots, depending upon how they're fired in porcelain, is made from a different type of clay. It's also fired at a much higher temperature, um, have different um, technical characteristics, and because they're made out of different materials and they're produced differently. And so I don't know, for example, whether you could actually apply paint in this way to a porcelain piece that's already been glazed and whether the paint would adhere in the same way. My guess would be not. Um, because porcelain glaze, because it's essentially, it's glassy, it's very slippery. And my sense would be that the paint probably wouldn't adhere the same way as it would to um, these pots, which uh, do not have glaze on them. And again, uh, the red and black paint that would originally be on the surface, this is simply watery clay. This is called slip. Um, so it's essentially, it's the same material as the pots themselves. Um, I also think that um, these Hondines tea urns lend themselves really nicely to this type of experimentation simply because um, if you're dipping um, a ceramic piece um, in glaze or in paint, you need a surface that will kind of slow down the dripping process. And so here we can see that a lot of the, the kind of oozing drips have concentrated around the middle part of the urns where you have the widest part of the pot. So I would say that's simply a matter of physics. I think that goes again back to an understanding of the material uh, similar to an understanding of how this pot will drop and you know one half of the pot which has been you know experienced much more damage um, than the other part simply because of the difference in shape uh, between the upper and bottom portions of that that vessel um, the second question was about why coca-cola and there were certainly other artists as you mentioned during the 1990s who on um, political pop who also worked with logos and um, the interest in logos certainly comes out of um, um, I think a retrospective uh, look um, back at the Cultural Revolution and the kind of graphic art that was being produced during that period. And some of the artists who worked in political pop had that kind of background in lettering um, posters, propaganda posters, where there was a very strong correlation and text and image relationships. Um, uh, why Coca-Cola? Um, well, that's a very good question. Um, so, and Coca-Cola is omnipresent in China, so this seems to suggest something about um, consumerism, and um, I think this also goes back to um, uh, the sort of artistic influences to which Iowa was exposed in the, in the night, in his the, that decade of time that he spent living in New York City, and we know that he was uh, very much an admirer not only of Marcel Duchamp but um, also of Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol himself also played with logos, and um, he also had a piece based on Coca-Cola bottles. And I would also venture to guess that maybe the color of the logo also has something to do with it. So um, this particular pot is unusual because it's been painted in silver and the ground of the pot, or I should say that the ground, which is actually the surface of the pot, um, has been left untouched. But the earliest ones were covered entirely with white paint and then painted over with red. And the original paints that were used to treat the Neolithic pots were red and black. So that might have been another reason for that. Um, yeah. So I'm interested in um, these photos, how, 
work that has this kind of performative uh, quality, there's usually great care taken into um, staging and what the artist is, is wearing and where exactly they appear. And I was wondering if you see any significance in how he staged these photographs. Um, yeah, and just in his choices in terms of uh, clothing, setting, um, if there's any, any um, sort of greater symbolism that can, can be found in the way that he's, he's staged them. Um, so the question was regarding significance and how this performance was staged. And um, I would say on the one hand that it seems very artfully staged, um, just from my perspective and looking at the photographs. And I think there's also a distinction between maybe the staging of the performance and the staging of the photograph. And um, there's something I like very much about the tactile quality of the photograph, about um, the difference in the textures of the brick wall, and then uh, the cement ground on which he's standing. You can also see the two potholes, and that seems to be certainly you know, quite artfully arranged. Whether that was the arrangement made by the photographer or by Iowa himself, I don't know. Um, um, on the other hand, uh, there's something about this piece that seems um, quite the opposite, and this maybe sums up other contradictions that we see in his work. Um, his hair is ruffled. Um, there doesn't seem to be any attempt made to make himself look nice for the camera. Um, he's wearing, wearing very ordinary clothes. Um, he's wearing cloth shoes. Um, one almost has a sense that he stood up one day and said, you know, let's give this a try. I'm sure there was more to it than that, but I would say there seems to be a contradiction here between what seems to be something that's very nicely staged, and at the same time, something that seems very casual and added talk about the piece. Yeah. Okay. There are any other questions? No? Okay. Well, um, thank you all for coming, and I hope that if you live in the D.C. era, you'll come back to um, experience other events that the Hirshhorn is, is, has organized in conjunction with his exhibit. So there's a full schedule um, throughout December and January, so please check the calendar downstairs. Thank you.